Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Somerset Stories, the podcast which explores the lives of the people who live, work and create in Somerset. My name is Lewis Webb and each week I get to share the stories of some of the inspiring, creative and successful individuals and families that make this beautiful county their home. We're back for a new season with 14 fantastic guests lined up ready to share their lives and insights. Plus we've got a brand new game to play to test their Somerset knowledge to the limits. As ever, your comments, reviews and feedback are always appreciated. And if you'd like to send us a message, you can email hello at somersetstories.com. My guest this week is a broadcaster who's been informing and entertaining audiences through radio and TV for over 30 years, Simon Parkin. With a career that's seen him in the children's BBC broom cupboard, Top of the Pops and GMTV, as well as a whole bunch of radio shows, his voice is well known up and down the county to BBC Radio Somerset listeners. Our chat includes a great trip down memory lane and talking about supporting the local community during the pandemic. Simon, welcome to Somerset Stories. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. How has your summer been so far? It's been quite busy, but not a lot has happened, which sort of sums up the last 18 months, really, doesn't it? The the whole of the, the pandemic sort of changing things means that summer has been... We've been quite lucky in my house where we family... My children had grown up and they'd already moved out, but then at the tail end of the first lockdown, they came back. So we had my son and his partner and my daughter and her son. And so we had a house full. And so it was lovely that we're all together. But at the same time, you kind of think, oh, God, we quite liked a bit of peace and quiet. We quite like <laughs> not having to worry about anything. So there's this very odd thing where as a parent, even though the, the children are now fully fledged adults, you revert back to being a parent so they made mess and we felt we had to tidy up after them we felt that we had to cook for them and and all of this kind of stuff and so they thankfully they've all gone again now right so the the summer has suddenly become quiet calm there's tidiness in the house it's 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 sort of it's a bit probably too slow but after the frantic year that we had it's quite nice that it's it's sort of calm but we haven't gone away or anything yet so so that's the next big thing is when we when we dare go and face the world your voice is a familiar one to people all around the county but you grew up a little further north Mm. yeah manchester manchester was home for well until i was 20 um yeah, and a great place to, to grow up. We had I had Manchester United on the doorstep and you could afford to go to the matches back then and Manchester had concerts come and we had a massive, great, big commercial radio station called Piccadilly Radio, which Timmy Mallet started his career on. And whilst we think of Timmy Mallet as being the man with the big glasses and the, the wacky shirts, he was like proper cool radio DJ. We also had, the BBC had quite a big base in Manchester and they produced a lot of children's programmes at the time. So it felt like there was stuff going on. It wasn't London and I kind of was growing up aware of that, but it still was somewhere where you could get a bus and be somewhere that was happening. Were your parents in the media world? Were they part of that? No, no, not at all. My mum was, uh, she sort of did pretty much everything. She worked for a company that sold trucks. She worked for a company that sold office equipment. She set up her own company selling caravans. Um, My dad was a computer engineer. And this was kind of before computers were sort of computers. So I would go into his work with him and there would be these it was like something out of James Bond, the big, massive reels of tape that would be whirring around. And there were all these funny little bits of cardboard that had dots 
knocked out of them and that was some sort of programming something and so he he did that throughout all of his career pretty much through my life I think he'd been a TV engineer beforehand so that classes as media but no there was no no one in the as far as I know in the family had any kind of media showbiz or anything connections and so the world of computer engineering didn't necessarily appeal to you growing up no I don't think so I think I originally wanted to be an actor because I think that looked cool because I'd seen a James Bond film. And then I, my mum and dad had a record player in the front room, big old-fashioned wooden box, looked like a coffin, um, radiogram it was called, and they had numerous records, Carpenters, John Denver, the types of records that all parents had. And they also had a box set of Reader's Digest 60s, records and every year was on a different disc so you had the 61 the 61 one 62 one and I just remember being quite young I loved Noel Edmonds on the Radio 1 breakfast show and Tony Blackburn did the golden hour at nine o'clock when the breakfast show finished and he would play here's another here's another song from 1964 or whatever so I sat in my living room next to the big old radiogram put the Reader's Digest needle on the record is 1966 and talked in between all of the tracks on the record and kind of thought I could I could do this and then decided that radio would be what I wanted to do. Were you someone who sort of wanted to be in the spotlight did you get involved in things like drama at school or was it just radio and that as a media that that kind of interested you? I tried to get into the the drama at school but I was never good enough so no I I think I have no acting skills so that didn't help but um, I think when, I mean, going back to the age I was then, th- there wasn't a lot of opportunity to sort of see where you could go and do stuff. So there were a handful of commercial radio stations up and down the country. There was a handful of BBC local radio stations. Then there was the big four. Apart from that, the only other way of doing it was hospital radio. So whilst I, I knew that radio was what I wanted to do, there was no outlet until I was 14 and the hospital near me opened up a hospital radio station I was able to join and because I was only 14 there was an opportunity to do as well as all of the collecting requests and all of the stuff that you have to do at hospital radio there was an opportunity to do a children's show because I was a child so that was sort of allowed but no other than that I I hadn't done any amateur dramatics I don't think I did any talent shows at Butlins or anything I think I just kind of radio was sort of where I thought I'd like to be or telly probably but just be Noel Edmonds I think is what I wanted to be (laughs) and was that encouraged by your parents were they did they push you in that direction or did they want you to get a proper job somewhere in between my mum was very encouraging because she was my mum so I would and you know I'm 14 I've sat in my back bedroom with a cassette recorder pretending I'm Tony Blackburn I've sent a tape to some high up at BBC Radio Lancashire who has listened and thought, God, this 14-year-old child, what are you thinking? But took the time to send me a very nice letter saying, well, thank you, I can see there's a lot of potential there, but at the minute there are no jobs. And so my mum would be the one that when I showed her the rejection letters that I was getting would say, don't worry, it'll all be fine. My dad was a little bit more sensible and I think he thought that I should, yeah, it's all well and good you having this sort of dream, but you're going to need a proper job. So, but neither of them were were especially because we didn't know anybody who had become famous on the radio or anything back then. So I don't think either of them were thinking, yes, you're going to, don't you worry, you keep dreaming, you can do whatever you like. But equally, I think there was a bit of, yeah, when are you going to get a proper job? Also, I suppose at the time you mentioned, there weren't 
typical routes into it. As you said, it was sort of hospital radio was a, was a place to start, but also, you know, schools weren't teaching media no. studies or production or anything along those lines. So it wasn't something that you could set yourself up for. No, well, when I left school, funnily enough, my cousin had done, uh, he'd done some sort of college course in catering. And so I thought, well, that sounds quite interesting. So I put my name down for that. And I, as the, the start date approached, I thought, oh, God, I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. So I said to my mum, what am I going to do? She said, right, do a youth training scheme. Get yourself down to the careers office. And I went to the careers office who said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to be a broadcaster. And they said, right, OK, well, the only thing we've got that's close to that is there is a, there's something in a theatre. Is that any good for you? And so that was what I went and did. And that was literally the only thing that the careers office could come up with when I said, I want to be a broadcaster. And, you know, that's how few the opportunities were back then. And, you know, knowing what I know now, probably had I gone off to university and got a degree, then I probably would have been able to find my way into some sort of BBC journalistic course or something like that perhaps but I had no idea about any of that when I was 16 we didn't have the internet so it's not even like you could look stuff up you just kind of well I was just sort of getting by thinking well I quite like what that man Bruno Brooks does on the radio I want to do what he does as well. You said that you started out at a local hospital radio station do you remember your first time on air? Not really no it was we had a three-hour show and there were three of us and we all had an hour each and I was the early hour So I launched the kids' show that was on a Saturday morning between 9 and 12. It was called Breakaway, and we we played Tracy Ullman, who at the time was a big TV star, and she then brought out some pop records, heaven knows why, probably for the money. Uh, They were very good, don't get me wrong. Um, And she brought out a record called Breakaway, and we used that as the theme. So that much I can remember. I do also remember going to the children's ward in the hospital and asking what songs they wanted us to play and they just said the recent pop songs whereas you go to the adult wards and they wanted the old rugged cross and you go oh, I'm afraid I haven't got that it's the latest Deep Purple single for you but um so yeah no I don't I don't remember the specifics of being on air for the first time but I can remember the show and the theme and the nine o'clock stuff what were some of the early lessons in your craft then I just sort of picked it up as I went along with the people that I was working with. I was very lucky that when I was um, at school, we, we, for the first two years, this sounds really dull, and forgive me if it's the most boring story I ever tell. Uh, at my senior school, for the first two years, you were in your forms and you just stayed within that group. And then when you got up to the third year, you then were mixed and matched with other pupils from different bits of the school. And one of those pupils just happened to be a radio geek too and he we bonded over finding out that he'd been on Piccadilly Radio used to do this thing where Gary Davis who went on to be really proper famous at Radio 1 he used to do this thing where he would have people come in and be interviewed and play three songs on his show and then they'd go home again and my friend Phil did that so when Mr West our geographer teacher mentioned that Phil had been on the radio I then made a beeline for Phil and then he and I at the same time were moving in the same direction and learning. We He was the same as me, listened to the radio, loved what he heard, understood music. Uh, he was Phil, very funny guy, so he was good with comedy stuff as well. And so we just, between us, 
took every opportunity that we could. So we joined the first hospital radio station, then we were lucky enough to join another one, and then another one, and we all we did it as a team. And we were, I think, partly because we were doing it together, that made it easier to you notice somebody else doing something that might be a good thing to do or equally might not be a good thing to do that you wouldn't necessarily see in yourself. And I think we it benefited both of us to have each other as we were growing and developing. I think we just were really helpful to each other in that we we sort of worked it out for ourselves. And obviously you, you, you can always learn and you can always get better and there are always things that you're going to do wrong on any given day. But I think we we sort of did all right enough for us both to end up getting careers in, in radio at a relatively young age. And then at the age of 20, you had a particularly eventful year. You went from doing the hospital radio to, to landing your first professional radio gig and then ending, on, ending up on Children's BBC by Christmas. Yeah. So while going through that kind of whirlwind period of time, did you have any kind of moment to reflect on on what was going on and just gasp at the vastness of it all? The getting on the radio, I had time to work that out because I was offered an opportunity to do three Saturday shows, and that was it. There was it wasn't like right here's a job, come and do this job. I'd applied to a radio station called Radio Tees, who were, they were actively looking for a presenter. I sent my tape in, heard nothing, and then just decided one day I'm just going to phone and just say, oh, hello, I sent this tape, I just wondered if you'd had a thought. Very unlike me, because I'm not especially confident, but for whatever reason, I thought that was the thing to do. And I spoke to a lovely man who then became my boss, a chap called Peter Craig, who we just chatted and he said, we haven't made any decisions. And then about a couple of days later, he then got in touch and said, right, we want you to come and do an audition. And I came and did an audition. And then he said, right, come and do these three Saturdays. And so, because that's all it was, that could that could have been my radio career. My radio career could have been, I did three shows on Radio Tees and it didn't work out and nothing else ever happened. So it felt like a big deal. And my mum and dad, we were living in Manchester at the time, so they drove basically to the top of the Pennines, which was as, as, as close as they could be to, to Teesside and as, or as close to Manchester, but as far away from Teesside and still pick it up. And they made the point of coming and listening at two o'clock in the afternoon to me starting my radio career actually on the actual radio. And so whilst I knew that it was a big, important opportunity, I was lucky enough to kind of for it to go all right. And then they said, right, well, we've got this daily show. Do you want to come and, and do it? And so then I had to move house and move out of my parents' home. And But it was all really exciting. I was going to, to do what I wanted to do. And radio stations back then were, the, the for the most part, they were independent. But the one that I worked at had already been bought out by the bigger station down the road. And so they were, they'd shrunk back the hours and they were starting to grow again, which is when I came in. So I came into a programme that was on every evening between six and eight, which is a pretty good time to be on the radio. It's not too late and there's still a bit of drive time. So it sort of feels like you've got traffic news and it feels like a, a big, important show. So I was very lucky that I didn't have to do overnights or, you know, really hard work on on very awkward shifts that, that would have made life hell. And I just 
sort of did all right. And the boss that I had allowed me to experiment with things. He had, he trusted me to, you know, do some things that were creative. And yes, some of them were rubbish and some of them were quite good. But he, he sort of had enough faith in me to know that I'd be able to work out what was good and what wasn't. And as long as we tuck the listeners along with us, then that would be great. And the programme was primarily aimed at six till seven was a bit sort of people driving home from work. Seven till eight was more young people doing their homework. There was no barely any telly then. So it's not like, you know, the young people of today would be watching YouTube or whatever. They used to tune in as I had done to Piccadilly Radio, listening to Timmy Mallet, thinking, God, this guy's amazing. And so there were these young people who would tune in into my show and we would do, we do competitions, we do let's do something random, write in with a letter about, and people would write letters. And that's, this is the hardest thing that I, when I look back now at the world in which we are now, where I can say something and within a half a minute someone's texted. Back then you had to wait, right? They had to get a pen out and a piece of paper and physically write something. And then tomorrow they had to remember to post it. And the day after it had to end up in my pigeonhole at work, but I've already planned tomorrow's show, so it's the day after that. So you'd kind of, you, what, what now is like done in five minutes? took four days back then so but it sort of worked and it sort of kind of was what the station were looking for it fitted in with how I hoped that my broadcasting would work and so I kind of got away with it and and that was great and and then the opportunity to do children's BBC came up within that early bit of excitement oh my god I've suddenly got a job on the radio and the the TV came about because I used to do a programme that was on at nine o'clock on a Saturday morning and the Saturday breakfast show before me, the guy who hosted it, he was he was very young, he was very talented, he was gonna be a big star and in his head I think he thought he was gonna be a big star and he definitely wanted to do TV, he'd auditioned for a few TV shows and hadn't unfortunately had the opportunities and in the papers this one Saturday morning first thing you do when you work at a radio station you're in early as you read through the papers and there's this story about Philip Schofield who was doing the children's BBC broom cupboard at that point was he was not going to be doing it anymore he was going to move on to the Saturday morning show the BBC did not know who was going to replace him is what the piece in the Daily Star said and so I said to the guys on before me hey look this this thing you should go for that and he was Proper moany that day. He was clearly having a bad day. Oh, I'm too tall. Oh, they wouldn't be interested. So two hours later, at the other end of my show, the next guy comes in, chap called Andy Hollins, lovely man. And I said, oh, you'll never guess. I was telling Mark about this thing earlier on. And Andy Hollins said, well, no, you should go for it. I said, well, I've only just been here for, this was sort of July. I'd literally only just joined two months earlier. And he said, no, look, I auditioned when Andy Crane got the job of the children's BBC person. So here is the name of the person. Phone this man and say, can I come and see you? And so he wrote down the name Pat Hubbard and a television centre phone number on a piece of paper and gave it to me. And I sat and thought, well, I'm not, I'm not going to... I've literally only been here for two months. I can't... I've, I'm loving it here. I don't want to do that. Then I had a bad day and then the boss had a go at me or something. So I thought, right, OK. So I phoned this man. And got through to this man called Pat Hubbard, who was the loveliest man in the world. And he was just chatting. And he said, no, no, we're not really looking for anybody. Uh, but you come in, come and see me. When are, you, when are you next in London? He said to a boy who's lived in Manchester all his life and only just moved to Stockton on teeth. I said, well, I don't really come to London. And he said, well, when is your next day off? And I said, Thursday. So right, come down on Thursday. So 
I went down to London, going to Television Centre. I mean, that was just enough to be able to go through the gates and say, hello, I'm here to see. And he invited me in and showed me round. And while he was showing me around, he sat me in a studio and said, I hope you don't mind, Bart. Let me just put this earpiece in and look down this camera. I'm going to go in the gallery. I'm just going to ask you a few questions. And he asked me what my name was and what my job was and what kind of things I did. And then he came back in and said, oh, I'm really sorry. I should have given you more time. It's very bad of me to audition you without giving you the chance to have a think about it. And um, But I, I would quite like to offer you some work. Do you want to come and work here at Christmas? And it was like... My God. So suddenly I was from nowhere, amazingly moving rapidly forward through TV or to TV in a way that I hadn't thought that it would ever happen. Because I'd sort of thought that you get on local radio and then you do that for a few years and then you get on Radio 1 if you're very lucky. And then you get to do Top of the Pops and then you do television 10 years later. And suddenly it was, oh, my God. And to work in television centre and I was I didn't know anything about television or radio I had had many years to sort of perfect my art whilst sitting in my back bedroom at home TV I had no idea so I didn't know you're supposed to look down the camera I didn't know you know you got to smile more and all of these things so I don't think I was very good but fortunately the BBC were they had the time and the energy to say right well come back again at Easter and let's try doing this and then I came back in the summer and then I never went and so it was just the most phenomenal year where all of my dreams sort of came true. And how did it feel you know moving down from the north to London uh, into kind of the unknown really? It was so exciting it was proper exciting my I was very lucky that my cousin had a house with a spare room so when I came down to London full time I was able to lodge with my cousin Jenny for a little while so that was good because I was it was family so I'd come home from work and be in you know in a safe happy environment equally when I was at work I was working in this amazing building where you walk down the corridors and you bump into Noel Edmonds and Terry Wogan and French and Saunders and stuff so that you know work was an amazing place to be home was great because it was all nice and comfy and so it was it was amazing and I was also when you are doing a programme like Children's BBC, people say, oh, do you want to come and come to the opening of this? And do you want to come to a concert? And, do you want to... and so I had all these opportunities to go and see anybody I wanted to see live in concert. And oh, it was an amazing. I, I was so lucky that, that I was the age I was. And because I was working in TV, don't get me wrong, it wasn't millions of pounds, but it was pretty good money for someone of my age to be earning. So I was able to live a really lovely life where I could go to places I could afford to eat at nice restaurants. And it was all it was just an amazing time. I'm so blessed that it happened to me at the time that it did. And I was able to to enjoy and make friends. And, you know, what what an amazing place London is. I, I loved the fact that I was in London. I used to just very occasionally drive to near the river which I didn't live particularly near the river but you drive to the river and just look at the Thames and think oh my god this is the boy who grew up wanting to be in London working in the media and it and it was like gosh here I am not in an egotistical way but in a kind of I can't quite believe how lucky I am. Your tenure on Children's BBC coincides almost exactly with kind of my peak time of watching it I would have been seven uh, when you started so I might be a little bit biased here but I do feel to some extent that the team you were part of were 
we're sort of at a really big point of evolving mm. how you do children's TV. And of course, there'd been things like Crackerjack um, and Swap Shop in you know in the past, but there was a lot of creativity in the area that that you were a part of. I, that's really kind of you to say. And yeah, I think I think you're right. The first big change was, and you can probably look at Philip Schofield as being. He was like a cool big brother to the viewers where perhaps on Blue Peter you got maybe an auntie or an uncle. And so he was the first, oh, he's sort of a bit like us. And because he was so relaxed, that helped with the warmth and the the old expression that I love, the mother of invention is necessity. And Children's BBC was literally a camera stuck to a monitor bank in the BBC One continuity studio where they had the big voice of BBC One would sit and say, now the news with Philip Hayton. And so because all they had was one camera, you had to be really clever in what you did. And Philip started that tradition, Gordon the Gopher, you know, a very simple puppet, but it had to be a simple puppet because there wasn't the cleverness of, well, we can't cut to another camera because there isn't another camera. He has to do what he does. He has to be poking out from underneath the desk because that's all he can do. And that way that it worked, the way that the viewers liked the sort of, not at all high-tech, not at all sophisticated way that it was real, helped, I think, with when you look at the evolution of Saturday mornings. And I loved Swap Shop when I was growing up. And Swap Shop was very live, very as it happens, Tiz was on the other channel, was even more so. But proper telly was never like that. It was all quite staid, people sitting behind desks, cameras that were beautifully moving. Whereas when you get to, from Swap Shop to Saturday Superstore to going live, which was Philip moving Saturday mornings, there were handheld cameras. There were. It felt much more normal and much more natural. And then you get a something like, for example, The Big Breakfast, which came on couple of years later and was that in spades that was the the whole thought behind it was let's do a normal show but let's do it like it's a kid's show and it just felt way more natural and as I said the fact that presenters had been getting slightly younger all added to the timing which like you say hopefully was a really interesting time for for the evolution of children's television both in terms of the people who were doing it and in terms of the way it was being done. You were allowed to... I mean, I don't remember in all of my time at Children's BBC a boss ever telling us anything. I don't remember anybody ever saying, you can't do that, you can't say this, you can't. And we were just encouraged to be creative and we were encouraged to have fun. And, you know, I was on... Myself and Andy Peters were sort of a bit of a kind of double act for a little while and we just got on brilliantly. And we were just... We'd say, well, can we do this? And he's got the most amazing eye for television. So he would know that the camera you need is this and the, that and the, and the BBC would just go, yeah, all right. And so we, we we were able to make it up as we went along. And again, I'm sure we could watch YouTube videos and go, oh, OK, this really went out on the telly. But at the time, it felt like it was fresh and it was happening and it was spontaneous and it was exciting. And we know because a lot of the viewing figures that came in the bits in between the programmes sometimes were rating higher than the actual programme. So we know that people kind of quite like what we did. And a lot of people nowadays will talk about how entertainment and broadcasting is is very cutthroat industry. But I've spent a little bit of time re-watching clips of BFT 
which was the sort of summer holiday programming as well. And it, it just seemed like you're all just mates having fun. And there is, there is no kind of, I want to be front and centre. There's no competition element. Oh, gosh, no. No, no, it was absolutely never like that. And yes, we were, we would all, we'd go out for dinner. We'd spend Sundays together when we had nothing to do. And we were, we genuinely just all got on. And, you know, for, for, I, I suspect a bit of that maybe shows in a more amateurish way than perhaps you'd like. But at the same time, it was natural. It You know, it wasn't forced. We weren't trying to do anything and we could we had enough faith in the others that if you did make a mistake if you did say something stupid they were going to take the mickey out of you and that's fine because that then is what the viewers are probably doing so yeah no well I'm glad that you've watched it and got that vibe because that's sort of what it felt like from the inside You mentioned the sort of hallowed corridors of, of Television Centre running into people. Was that the case for wanting to branch out and because uh, you got to present things like Top of the Pops, would, would you just sort of run into a producer and ask? I definitely pursued the producer of Wogan in terms of saying, well, you know, if we could do something, me and Andy would we'd bump into him in the canteen. And he was a lovely man and he did eventually employ me. Um, his name was Peter Astall, and he would and he would jokingly say, "Like I'm sorry, I don't like being plugged while I'm having my lunch." Um, and and so yes, you would you'd go to back then. It sounds terrible now, but the BBC had a bar, and that's where everybody went for lunch, and that's where everybody went after the programmes. And so you would you would socialise with the people who were working on the big entertainment shows. So I knew the producer of Top of the Pops before I was lucky enough to do it. But no, Top of the Pops came along because my agent knew that they were looking for new presenters and so I had to audition and I had to... But, you know, the thought of doing Top of the Pops was still an amazing thing. And because you're in Television Centre, security, I suspect, is is way more tight now if you're in a, a BBC building. But back then, once you'd kind of got through the gates of Television Centre, nobody ever questioned you about anything. So you, we, would, we would go round, myself and Andy, first thing we'd do, we'd have a children's BBC... Um, bit that would go out between 10 and 10.30 with like play days and then we'd at that point we'd go and get a coffee and we'd go down to main reception and we'd say to the nice people on reception well who's it what's in today and they'd show us the clipboard and it would say open airs in studio one and Noel's house party is in studio two and you could you literally could just wander around and just go in and the nobody minded you'd go into the studio floor and the camera team were going, oh, hello, because they all worked on the children's programmes as well. We, uh, They were just sort of this roster of people and the floor managers we all knew. So they might be working on some brilliant new show today and they might be doing the birthdays with me tomorrow. And it was the same in the galleries. You could go into the galleries and the m- many of the directors and producers, you sort of didn't know them, but you knew them well enough for them to go, oh, yeah, we're just doing this. Yeah, no, we're going to be rehearsing soon. We're, yeah, And so you sort of knew everybody it didn't necessarily mean that you were going to be able to, you know, shovel your way through, elbows out, right, get me to the top of this broadcasting lark. Um, but but it did mean that when when you felt that you could perhaps have an opportunity, you could phone somebody and they would know who you are and you would know who they were. And they would say, oh, yeah, no, actually, we've got this project. We've got something on the go. We've got this happening. Um, it, it was a, just a lovely place to work because round every corner, not that there were corners because it was round, but round every bend, there was something exciting happening. And, and I mean, you know, from your 
everyday life. If you say something nice to someone about what they're doing, they're going to just give you loveliness back. So if you go, oh, I saw the programme last week. Yeah, I thought it was really good. They're going to, oh, well, come and have a look. Have you met Gloria? You know, and all of that kind of stuff. And so it was that kind of place where the BBC was able to just, you just go through a door. Might not lead you anywhere, but you were always welcomed when you got in there. So like Top of the Pops, for example, I did the Top of the Pops answer phone before they ever employed me because they just said, oh, look, do you, we need someone to do the answer phone for the office. Would you mind coming and doing it? And so, you know, I, even though I wasn't on top of the pops at that point, I was thinking, well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm halfway there. I do the answer phone <laughs> message that all the great and the good who phone in are going to get. So it was clearly predestined once I'd done that. that maybe that was my audition was like, yeah, well, he sounds all right when he says leave a message after the beep. So, yeah, we'll get him on. I, I have young kids. Uh, and one of the things I'm a bit sad about is that they don't watch TV in the same way that, that we used to. Obviously, with the abundance of uh, choice on streaming services, that kind of shared experience of broadcast, not necessarily shared as a family, but shared you know, in terms of talking about what happened on the, on the telly in the playground the next day. Mm. And if everyone at school is watching different things because they're all streaming, then you don't, you don't get that. You don't get that, you know, those sort of iconic moments uh, on like Grange Hill storylines, yeah. for example. Samos, what? No, you wouldn't have that, <laughs> would you? Um, but I suppose maybe it works the other way now. Maybe in the playground, someone says, hey, I watched this amazing thing on YouTube. And then you go off and watch it. And then tomorrow you go, oh, watch that thing you told me about. And so maybe it sort of happens. It's just not quite the big, it all happened Reaction live on telly stuff, at 4.30 yeah. yesterday. And if you missed it, you missed it kind of thing. But... Yeah, I, I, I do sort of know what you mean. And I know from, I did sort of get a feeling of this when I was lucky enough to be doing Children's BBC, to know how important getting in from school, had a hard day, got a whole load of homework that I can't be bothered to do, chuck my bad down and just turn the telly on. And I knew how important that sort of four o'clock till quarter past five when Blockbusters started was that was my time. That was my chill-out zone. And there would be a Grange Hill and there'd be John Cramer's news round, which I'd probably turn over during because he wants to watch the news. And But it was still that kind of, that was my bit of the telly. My mum and dad weren't in from work yet, so I wasn't going to be kicked off because they wanted to watch something. And I think, yeah, I think that it's, it's a shame that that specialness of how important that was to us because... You know, we didn't have computer games. We didn't have iPads. We didn't have any other way of enjoying records we could listen to, I guess, was the other mm. way of doing it. Or we could probably have gone out and played or something in some old fashioned <laughs> way, climb trees. <laughs> but um, but yeah, t- TV was, it, it, there was a specialness about children's BBC and children's ITV and that bit of time that was mm. post-school, pre-tea, this is our time. It might be stating the obvious, but unless you are the, the superhuman being that is Justin Fletcher, you can't do kids TV forever. So at what point did you feel like your time in that world was approaching a, a natural end? It probably told me before I told it. I was very lucky that I did Children's BBC for it about four and a half, five years. And I sort of knew that I had been doing what I'd been doing for long enough to be... I loved it still, and I absolutely loved the people that I was working with, but I knew that I perhaps wanted to do 
something else. I didn't quite know what it was. And I was probably way too young to be thinking about doing, you know, proper grown-up telly. But I had been a guest on Noel's house party and I had been able to see how alive a studio audience brings a programme and how with a bit more budget and great guests something more magical happens rather than what we were creating in our little studio up on the sixth floor. So I, I think I knew that I was outgrowing what I was doing. I was very lucky in that I was offered the opportunity to go to GMTV, who at that point they were a, they were an actual company as well as a broadcaster. So they were going to do the... They, TVAM had the first... ITV franchise for breakfast television. Back in the old days, all of ITV companies were separate companies in different parts of the country that came together for things like Coronation Street and, and Emmerdale. But at the time, they were still their own little separate units and breakfast was a separate unit. And TVAM had been an amazing success and they lost their franchise in a round of franchising that was basically revolved around who puts in the biggest bid. And so... I then was lucky enough to go and work for GMTV. Now, when I was offered the opportunity, I was offered the job of doing, we were going to do like a daily newsy children's strand that would run at 7.40 every day. And I would also do the holiday morning stuff. And so the my through my eyes, I thought, right, this is great because I am going to be, whilst I'm still doing children's, where the BBC is on six floors of a massive building and yes I can go and talk to the man who does Wogan but he's never going to employ me because he's got too many other people around. Within GMTV I thought well I can go in as the children's presenter and if I'm good then I can hopefully grow up there and do other stuff and then I can be the man who sits on the sofa. Mike Morris who was the man on TVAM for many years who was my kind of Frank Boff. I could be him. Um that did not happen at GMTV, but I was able to do various bits of programmes. So I did my first quiz show while I was at GMTV. I did a little sort of newsy review programme that was for young people, but at least it was newsy stuff. So all the while I was building on my showreel, right, there's me in the BBC doing, here I am playing with a puppet and here I am talking about actual news and here and so I was still a young person in a young person's program but I was doing it with perhaps more grown-up content so then I was able when GMTV was a an amazing experience to be there for the launch of a TV channel I you know cannot tell you how exciting that was and it was ITV and we were on the South Bank in London, which when you've lived, lived and worked in Shepherd's Bush, suddenly is like the most glamorous place in the world. And and whilst it didn't work out how I thought it was going to, that's where I met my wife. And so, you know, I have lovely thoughts about the GMTV experience. And whilst I didn't end up being Eamon Holmes, what I did get was enough showreel material to then go off and be able to do some more grown-up programming. And so it, it was... I think I was, well, I mean, I, by the time I left GMTV, I was already married and had a baby. And so, you know, thinking back, I mean, that obviously qualified me more to doing children's TV. But at the time, I'm thinking, oh, God, I'm an old man. And also I had the responsibility of being a grown up that I've got to, well, somehow I've got to feed this child. So I've got to make sure that the work is coming in. So then I was able to look and, and start doing some other 
stuff. And and at that point, you know, I probably was way too expensive compared to the young, talented people who were coming through and would, would do a better job than I did. I was listening to your show this morning and you said that you've been in your home in Somerset for 24 years. Yeah, n- next month. Next month, yeah, it will be 24 years. What originally brought you to this part of the world? When my wife and I met, we both had flats in London. And then when we were pregnant, we thought, right, we need to do the grown-up thing and we need to move slightly out of London. It just so happened to be where my parents lived at this point. So it was like, right, uh-huh. Close by, we've got free babysitting. So we moved to a lovely village in Buckinghamshire and it all seemed lovely. And then that was when I was working at GMTV and I suddenly wasn't working at GMTV anymore. And so we'd bought this lovely little house that was very sweet, needed stuff doing to it. And suddenly I didn't have the work to back up the work that the house needed doing and we were getting by don't get me wrong there were bits of work and stuff we weren't sort of you know sitting in the cold thinking oh this is all whatever but my coinciding with us moving out of London to this village that was lovely but it wasn't quiet sleepy countryside that we thought it was going to be my dad was he was working in Berkshire for a company and it, it wasn't going very well for him and he was approaching retirement age and so we thought, right, if we sell our house and my mum and dad sell their house and we move to a different part of the country, then my mum and dad could not have a mortgage anymore. And then if my dad wants to retire early, then that's great. And if we can free up a bit of cash from the house that we've got and buy something as nice somewhere else, then that would be great. So that's the sort of overarching thing that is going on at this point. I then got offered Panto in Western Supermare. So I came to Western to do some press preview meeting, whatever, picked up some property guide on the way and then went back and said, right, well, maybe we should think of Somerset because where we are in sort of London, you go up the M1 for that side of the country. If we're at that end, then you just go up the M5 and it's the same. You're just at the other side of the country. What's not to love? And so we put our house on the market and within like three days we had an offer for the asking price was like, oh my god so we have to move very fast and we this is pre-internet so i the only time i'd ever been to somerset before was for the the bbc used to have at the bath and west show an enormous stage where they would have michael fish would come and do the weather and stars of eastenders would come along and terry nutkins from the really wild show would bring an actual lion cub to the bath and west show and so i'd done things like that and so that was all I knew about Somerset. I'd been to Shepton Mallet and I'd stayed in Wells. And that was that was pretty much it. And then we had a couple of weekends where we looked at a map and spoke to estate agents. And we went to all of these different places that we'd never heard of before. And we looked and went, oh, that's really sweet. And that's really nice. And that's really whatever. And all the while, the time's clock's ticking. Well, you, you know, they want to know, have you got a new house yet? And so we hastily moved to Somerset. And it was great because when I then did the panto, I could commute every night and having a small child, that was all lovely. And the house that we found in Street, which is where we've lived for 24 years, had, when we did our little tick list of rights, got to have a this and a that and the other. The house had all of that. And so we kind of moved here 
without knowing much about the area, without having done any research, but it felt like the right thing to do. And 24 years on, we're still here, so it must have been. Were there any elements of that kind of life closer to London that you that you missed moving, you know, out to this part of the world? The the annoying thing, and it was like proper annoying, was the the very weekend that I moved, we moved here. I then had a regular job in London came up and that for like three years. So I had to commute back. Now, as luck would have it, we'd kept my wife's flat. So we had a London flat that we were able to kind of, I was still able to go to London and not be the end of the world. But when Emily was born, we were the first in our circle of friends to have a baby. And so we were the ones that went through the, well, we haven't, what what do they mean? Should we go out for a meal? We've got a baby. We can't go out for a meal. What do you mean? Can we just go to the pictures tonight? We can't just drop everything. So we'd already gone through the adjustment of, oh, we have no life anymore because we've got this baby to look after. So to move out of London to Somerset, we'd sort of already realised that life wasn't going to be quite like that again anyway. I think had we not had a baby, had we suddenly moved as just a couple from London to Somerset, we would have gone, well, hang on, we used to be able to go to the West End. We used to be able to go and do this and do that. And so I think that would have been hard, but we'd had the, the transition of a small child, meaning that your world's turned upside down. So so no, I don't, I don't think, and I was still working in London on the weekends anyway, so I was sort of getting me fixed. I could still go to my old hairdressers and stuff. So it didn't. I didn't feel like I'd broken all ties with London. Something else we love having a chat about in the Southwest is the weather. And you've had your time presenting the weather. How did you get into that? I did a few bits of telly for HTV, as it was then. And it seemed to go quite well, and they seemed to quite like me, and it was all good. And they had, when I first moved to Somerset, Jill Impey was the HTV weather star. And then, as it happens, I worked with Jill on one of the last projects that she did. she The weather had been, must have been a money thing, was all coming from Birmingham, and so Jill wasn't doing the weather anymore. And so that was the way that regional news went. And then somewhere along the line, someone went, well, wait a minute, if we have a weather presenter, they can do all these other things. Let's get a new weather presenter. So HTV, possibly ITV West by then, advertised for a weather presenter. So I spoke to the guy who'd been my boss at HTV when I did the original shows, and said, look, I've seen this. Should I go for it? Is it worth me going for it? I don't know anything about weather, but I do know how to present. And he said, oh, God, yeah, go for it. So I put in an application and went and auditioned and didn't get the job. But the person in charge at, at ITV West in Bristol gave my tape to the man who was in charge of ITV West Country in Plymouth because they were separate, still separate bits of ITV at that point. And so I just got a random phone call one day saying, hey, went to see ITV West about the weather. Would you fancy doing it down here? We've got a six-month opportunity. The weather presenter, Kate, is going off on maternity leave. So, you know, if you fancy it, come and see me. And so I went down and had a chat and had to do an audition. And they said, yeah, we'd like to to give you the opportunity to do it. And I, I, because I didn't know anything about weather... I thought, well, it's Devon and Cornwall. It's like the furthest bit of the ITV region. If I'm awful, no one's going to see. And so the worst that can happen is in six months they go, well, he was terrible. She comes back from a maternity leave and I just get sent away somewhere. So 
I thought, well, I'm, I may as well just kind of give it a go. Now, the very lucky thing was, what year would it be? It must have been 2006. And I started in the June. And it was the year we had a lovely summer. And so I was basically paid to go to all these lovely holiday hotspots in Devon and Cornwall and do just, you know, a bit of minute and a half of telly here and there. And so it sort of went all right. And I got a lovely tan and it was all good. And then at the end of the six months, Kate sure enough came back and so i said to the guy at itv well you know what, what do we do kate's come back what, where does that leave me and he said well there is this opportunity in a different region uh, meridian are looking for someone to do the launch of the new thames valley region so they're looking for a weather person and i said well i've been commuting to plymouth every day from somerset so i said well with the best will in the world i don't i don't think i want to move and i don't think that i want to commute either so do you think it'd be all right if I didn't go for that job? And he said, yeah, no, I'll just get you some freelance stuff. It's all fine. And then a couple of days later, he said, you know, that job in Meridian, you have to put in an application. You've got to do it. So I then put in an application and then sure enough, accidentally got that job. And ITV at that point wasn't in a very good place. It wasn't a very successful company regional news was being trimmed and trimmed and trimmed and I thought well there is absolutely no way that we are gonna move the family to a more expensive part of the country based in Southampton is where Meridian were on the possibility that I might get a year's worth of work out of this and the kids were Emily my eldest she was approaching she must have been going on for senior school at that point so it was a real crucial time for her to be doing what she needed to be doing educationally so I just thought, well, I will I'll just, I'll just do it and I'll see how it goes. And so I was commuting to Southampton. It was a very long day. And eventually I was there for like 11 years. Um, and I, I did learn a little bit about the weather. So I can look at a synoptic chart and sort of give you a vague idea about what's happening. But I was more presenter than weather. And again, as has been my, the, you know, the motto of my career, I've sort of got away with it where... I think probably they've not noticed all of the bad stuff because the good stuff has been all right enough for them to go, well, he's all right at that. So let's not worry about the rest of it. So thankfully I got away with it. But no, it's a really interesting job to do the weather. And also with working in the news environment, I was able to do some news standing in as a news presenter, which was, you know, God, having done children's TV a few years ago, you think, well, here I am presenting the news. That doesn't seem quite up to it about murders and stuff. Um, and plus the biggest bonus of all was that the Meridian News was fronted by Fred Dinage of How. So I got to work with Fred every day. So, you know, it was like this this whole, another of my boyhood dreams. You know, it was like, my God, the man of How. It's I'm sharing a dressing room with him. Let's talk about radio. Your current show blends the the local conversations and community input with more national trends when you first started did you have a clear vision of what you wanted to do with the show there was a a document that said that we had to do this that and the other and it was kind of a way of looking at the document and thinking right this when within a day's news agenda there are x stories within a local news agenda there are fewer how do you blend national news with local news and do something different that 
people haven't just heard on the breakfast show and they're not going to hear on the next show and so it was I'd been doing at BBC Somerset I'd been doing the Saturday breakfast show for God knows 15 years or something I've been doing it forever and they so they sort of liked what I did on that show and I think they just thought right if we can get a bit of that on a weekday doing stuff that is relevant stuff that is topical stuff that is Somerset stuff that is entertaining then it might sort of work and I was taken over from two very successful mid-morning presenters on BBC Somerset, although it was didn't it was called BBC Somerset then, it was called BBC Somerset Sound initially. And so that was Emma Britton who did the morning show and did had a massive success with it. And then Ben McGrail took over when Emma moved to breakfast and he was very well loved. And so it was, uh, d- don't not do what they've done, but don't do what they've done. And so we made it sort of work in a way that was topical. I... I selfishly, and if my boss sees this, I'll probably be sacked, I do the radio show that I kind of want to listen to because that's all I know how to do. I can People can say, right, you need to do this and you can do that, and I can do it, but to, to engage with the listeners in the way that hopefully we do, I have to be doing something that I'm engaged in as well. And so we try and find guests who are interesting. If they're local, that's brilliant. But if they're not local, then it doesn't matter. So today, for example, we had a guy who had over lockdown. He looked at all of the bus timetables and thought, I wonder how far I could get if I just got a bus from London, got off that bus, got on another bus, got on another bus. And he did it last weekend. And so I spoke to him and he was the loveliest man in the world. And he'd gone from London to Morecambe. It cost him 57 quid and he'd used 27 buses and he was a really lovely guest. And I would imagine that whilst he didn't travel anywhere near Somerset, people in Somerset get buses. And he did say that as he got more rural, there were fewer buses and he had to wait longer. And I suspect people in Somerset go, oh, yeah, we have that experience as well. And so whilst we weren't doing a local story and it had absolutely no relevance to where we were, actually, it was really relevant because he was talking about how important bus services are in rural communities and how amazing it is that you can actually get quite a long way, which probably a lot of our listeners would understand and know. So it's that it's trying to find for us, it's find a good story. If it's a good mm. story, then why would you not want to hear about it? What are some of the things that you think make the Somerset audience unique? Gosh, that's a hard one. We have a very loyal audience, I would say. And I primarily have worked in commercial radio where you probably are attracting a slightly younger age group of listener so you don't have that connection but I do know that through the lockdown and I think we felt it beforehand and we certainly feel it now that we're sort of out the other end of the pandemic we to some of our listeners we were the only person that they spoke to that day we were that link to real life we were telling them all right now this is happening and it really isn't great but here's the good bit and here's the and we were hopefully the entire team at BBC Radio Somerset were hopefully doing proper public service but in a very warm friendly and 
just being there kind of way. It's it, We sort of feel like some of our listeners are family and I think they sort of feel that we're family too. And I've never had that in any other radio session that I've worked for. We've had people who were fans and we've had people who loved what we did, but that that connection to and that wanting to be involved and I that's I think is the biggest thing that I get from the Somerset audiences that it it is we're quite special to them now I don't know if it's because Somerset has obviously as as has many other areas the radio has sort of dwindled away we used to have Orchard FM would have been the local station that was very big and there would be an overlap with GWR at the top of the region and Devon Air down at the bottom and and so all of those stations aren't there anymore and I think that perhaps we're people like that we are from Somerset for Somerset but we're not closed off it's not like there's this massive great big wall around the county and all we talk about is Somerset we talk about loads of other things and Somerset I, I have learned and I you know I'm an outsider myself I, the people who phone in and come on my programme, pretty much every other one. Oh, you yeah, know, I used to live in Hampshire or I used to live in Kent or I used to live in Derbyshire. And I think Somerset is one of those places that it attracts people. And so I think that you have to be, you've got to be broader than, well, this we're, we're a great county and that's all you need to know. We have to be, well, yeah, we are great, but wasn't it lovely when you're up in Derbyshire and you had the Peak District on your doorstep oh of course we've got Exmoor National Park down here but you can you can make the big country Somerset be relevant but the people who have come to Somerset still love wherever they used to be and it's sort of finding that that way of bringing you don't want people to move into an area and go oh it's all all they talk about is cider and the Wurzels we don't want to listen to that radio station and and I don't think we do that and so I think we're we're very lucky that this very loyal audience likes what we do, I think. With radio, I always feel that there are there are some shows that must be just physically tough to present day in, day out. I'm not an early riser, so the idea of presenting like a breakfast show is just, you can't do that. Um, similarly, you know, an evening show would mean that you, you can't make plans to go out. Is there... Is there like an unspoken hierarchy among presenters as to what the best show to present is? Traditionally, The Breakfast Show has always been the biggest show on the station. So if you are the biggest star, breakfast is where you should be doing it. Um, what's tended to happen in slightly more recent times, part of it to do with the way that streaming works, the lockdown certainly had an effect on it, is that... There used to be a peak at 10 past 8. 10 past 8 was, that's the big, that's when all of your big radio stations would do the big competition would be at 10 past 8 because that's when the most people at any one point are listening. And 10 past 8 kind of at some point became 10 past 9. And so when I started doing the morning show on BBC Radio Somerset, my show started at 9. And so I was getting that, you know, the biggest audience of the day. And it's, you know, it's not a given. Some... Rajar comes in three month cycles. That's how you get the listening figures. And so, with some three months, you could be the breakfast is bigger and other. And but essentially, any time between eight and ten, that's sort of your peak time. So, 
that's when you put the good stuff. That's when, as I say, commercial radio station will put all of the big competitions. They'll spend the money on having Jamie and Amanda doing breakfast on hearts where they perhaps don't necessarily pay as much to the person who's on between 10 and 1, who I don't even know. So, you know, the, the but breakfast is the biggie. That said, like you say, the downside of breakfast is that you've got to get up at four o'clock in the morning and breakfast on a BBC local radio station is two and a half hours of solid news. So that's really hard. So it's it's a proper hard gig to do. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if there is a hierarchy. I think breakfast is always thought of and will always forever be thought of as the big one. But, you know, that's just the way it is. We, we did. There are occasionally things that we think, oh, damn, breakfast are doing that and we wanted to do it. But I'm sure there are some days when they're going, oh, God, if they got us a guest, damn, we wanted them. So I think it all sort of works. But I think traditionally in a radio format, breakfast is the big one and, and it will always be thought of, even though I think the biggest audience of them all is Ken Bruce on Radio 2 now. You know, he's got the biggest listenership of anybody in the whole of the country. Annoying he's on at the same time as me. So, you know, I curse you, Ken Bruce. But, you know, the breakfast time probably isn't what it once was. With our movement having been restricted over the last 18 months, uh, a lot of people have connected on a deeper level with the more immediate area around them. Have you, have you felt that in your audience? Have you seen more people kind of wanting to tune in to sort of local issues and local things? It's really hard to know. We've not had any official listening figures because the way that radio listening figures are worked out is a door-to-door thing involving people and diaries. And so the minute that the pandemic struck, that wasn't allowed. So therefore we've not, we have no actual hard evidence to prove that we've got more listeners. What we do know is that with, on my show, we have a daily competition and we we get a handful of regulars who will phone most days to have a go at it. We'll also get a handful of people every day who are, oh, we've never heard of them before. Certainly through the first lockdown, when there were people who were furloughed, there were people who were working from home, we did notice that there were more people just having a go at the quiz. And so we we were aware that there were perhaps more people listening and they were people who they've always lived in Somerset they might have listened for an hour as they were driving to work in the morning or maybe caught a little bit as they were coming home but they were available to listen through the day so I think it was important for and this was a BBC local radio strategy for all of the local radio stations to make sure that they were reflecting what was going on in the county so for the first few months we were very lucky that we were able to do an awful lot of positive stories about, well, this community group's been set up, this taxi firm is actually delivering food to NHS workers. And so we had so many lovely stories and we were able to speak to the lovely people who were either the ones who were doing it or the ones who were receiving the benefit from doing it. And so I think we, just in doing all of that, will have then connected with people who, again, perhaps had never listened to BBC local radio before and and just because we'd interviewed them and they then told their wife that they were going to be on and they that they would have then listened and hopefully they keep listening because actually we're doing an all right job and they might quite like what we do when we play some all right songs so 
hopefully it, it's been one of those things that, that the way that everybody came together has helped everybody go, actually, you know what, we're a great county, we're full of great people doing really lovely things and, oh, and we're very lucky that we've got this half-decent radio station that we can listen to as well. But there is no, as I say, there is no hard proof on that because we haven't got official listening figures. But we do know that we we get, on my programme, We one of the things we do is we ask, we're not a random question, but we find a news story that we then say, right, if you've got an experience of this, give us a ring, drop us a text and tell us, you know, when did you meet an eel? We did the other day. It sounds random, but it one of the best we've done. And and in doing that, you you then don't get the, the there are 10 people who will respond to everything that you do. Well, they probably haven't met an eel. But if you have met an eel, then you probably, oh my God, he's interested in it. Well, let me just tell him. And so that's when you find out that you are getting listeners that you've never heard their name before you've you've we have on the way that the text works the name comes up the number comes up and you can click on it and to see how many times they've called or texted before and you go oh god they've never phoned before so we do know that there are newer listeners interacting it's not to say they weren't already listening they might just have never had the opportunity because nobody's ever said before when did you meet an eel and so their story that they've been waiting to tell for 50 years has never had the opportunity to come out so it could be that but no i think we we have found a way of hopefully being part of the community in a way that we perhaps weren't before we were there and we were doing an all right job but we were suddenly as much an important part because we were able to say right if you need this this is who you need to talk to if you need them talk to this do this do that and we were as much a part of what was going on as what was going on was was a part of it if you see what i mean you're obviously someone who who really enjoys connecting with people how much are you looking forward to being able to do that more in person through your work you know having guests in the studio rather than doing doing zoom calls and and that kind of thing Guests in the studio is, um, it's quite an interesting one because guests in the studio I find quite hard because you, when someone comes into the studio, you're naturally going to say, oh, hello, nice to meet you. Sit down, yeah, no, let me tell you, we're just going to do this, we're going to do that. And if it's a politician, you suddenly have to grill them. Suddenly you've got to turn Jeremy Paxman and you've just been really nice and, oh, how are the kids? And suddenly you're right, so... How is it you've wasted all of this money? So when you're face-to-face, that is a really hard thing to do. So Zoom has meant that we've been able to kind of not have to worry about that. So the lazy bit of me is thinking, well, that's actually quite good. The th- what I have missed is that we we will, for example, we'll do the quiz and we'll say, oh, what have we interrupted today? And and one lady said, oh, well, we're just restoring a piano. And I said, well, sorry, what do you mean you're restoring a piano? Yeah, it's my husband's job. He restores pianos builds them, restores them. And so 18 months ago, we'd have gone, right, can we come down on Tuesday? And we'll bring a tape recorder and we'll come and see and we'll do a... And that's the bit that I've missed that we've talked to these really interesting... I spoke to someone the other day. Uh, he said, oh, I'm a farmer. I said, what do you farm? And he said, we've got uh, a couple of pigs, uh, a fair few sheep, and we farm rats. And I said, I said well, I'm sorry? And he said, yeah, we f- for the there's a big market in snake feed. And so they... They farm rats that are then killed off and then sent out to snake breeders. And I thought, God, what an amazing thing to be able to go and do. So that's the bit that I've missed that we, we're we not able to go, right, can I come over? Because that's not been allowed. But so that when, that, when we're allowed to do that again, that will be lovely. 
Simon, we're now going to play Somerset Who's Who, which is the game where I'm going to give you people who have a Somerset connection and you have to guess their, their identity. Are you ready? Okay. I think so. Okay, so your first name is Kira Michael. So, was Kira Michael a Taunton-born volleyball player who competed at the 2012 Olympics? Or was she a member of the 90s R&B trio Cliché? I would like to think that she was a member of the R&B trio Cliché. I, I would imagine if she had done well in the 20 thinking Olympics, then I would surely have known her, but I don't know. God, this is... Yeah, I'm going to say a... I'm going to say a R&B. She was in the Olympics. Ah! Oh, curses. <laughs> Breakfast got that. That's why I didn't know. They got the interview. Damn it. Okay. Okay, your second name is Ernie Bourne. Okay. So, was Ernie Bourne an actor who emigrated to Australia and had a role in Neighbours, or was he the founder of the Somerset Sand Yachting Club? Well, again, I want to say he's the guy who was in Neighbours, but I'm going to have to say he was the, the sand yachting man. You should have gone with your gut. Oh, it's terrible. Uh, Ernie Bourne, had a, he was an actor who, who moved to Australia. Well, fancy that. Yeah. Is he still around? Is he, have we lost him? Is he? I can't remember. Okay. Well, I I'm going to find him, and if he is still around, I'm going to have him on my programme. So thanks for finding me a guest. <laughs> Wonderful. This guy I know is definitely not around anymore. Gilbert Phone, or Foen. Gilbert Foen. Uh, was Gilbert Foen the creator of the gardens at Tintin Hull, or the author of the 1931 book, The Art and Craft of Hairdressing? Oh, he's got to be the hairdresser, surely. He's the hairdresser, yeah, you're, yeah, you're correct. Thank you, see, there you go. So as soon as the, we're talking perms and demi-waves, I'm in there. <laughs> All right, your next name is... Flora Twart. Okay. <laughs> Great name. Uh, was Flora Twart the first female vicar in the county or a painter known for her watercolours and pastel landscapes? I think she was a painter. You're right. Phew. Okay, Phew. You're on a roll here now. Yeah, uh, I've found my feet. I've found my feet. <laughs> two, two out of four. Uh, so the last one. Could go so I way. could I could save myself by getting this with more right than wrong. Okay, yes, right. This, is, this is your... Your chance for redemption. Your last name is Eric Moon. So was Eric Moon uh, someone who went on to be the president of the American Library Association, or was he a spin bowler for the Somerset County Cricket Club in the 1970s? I'd like to think he was president of the, the Library Association, because that sounds like a great job. You're correct again. Hurrah. So Hurrah. three out of five. Phew. I just I only just have escaped <laughs> with my reputation. Only just intact. So yes, better than guesswork. <laughs> well, I think all guesswork. But anyway, but I'm gonna, I am gonna track down the man who was in Neighbours, and if he is still with us, he will be on my program. Simon, um, before we go, where can people find out more about you, um, the the work that you've been up to, and and kind of what's what's the best time to to tune into you? Well, some would say the best time to tune into me is when I've finished, but I'm on ten till two on BBC Radio Somerset. It's available, obviously, on the old-fashioned radio and on the BBC Sounds app. And you just Google BBC Radio Somerset schedules and you unfortunately, you are able to listen to a whole month's worth of programmes if you want to. Um, I also am um, on the Twitter. I'm not, not very 
kind of prolific on it so much anymore, but it's where we do throw stuff out there for the programme. So if you feel the urge, at Simon Parkin TV on Twitter, and that's got the links to my website, if you're vaguely interested to see what I've been doing for the last 30 odd years. Simon, thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful talking to you and uh, getting to reminisce about my uh, children's BBC memories as well. Well, thank you for having me. An absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Somerset Stories. If you liked it, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on social media at Somerset Stories or email hello at somersetstories.com. Music on all Somerset Stories productions is created by Jazar, who can be found at betterwithmusic.com. See you next time. <laughs>